Everybody open your Bible if you would. We're going to get back into Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And I'm going to title this message, The Power and Authority of Our King. And so Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, we'll read. And it says, They went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day, he, Jesus, entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority, and not as the scribes. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? And what new doctrine is this? For with authority commands he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. And let's pray. And Father, I ask, Lord, that your presence will be here with us, Lord. I just ask you'll open all of our hearts to receive your word and that we can see the glory and majesty and authority that is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his power and authority over all things, over all demons, over all nature, over all of creation. I just ask you'll open our eyes to that, that we can know that he is the one that we've put our trust and our lives in. And I ask you'll do that for us tonight in Jesus' name. So Mark, in this gospel, like we've said before, it's really made to be preached, to be heard, not so much to be read. And he moves quickly in this gospel through the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, right away, just kind of backtracking up to this point quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But he introduces John the Baptist as the one who proclaims and announces the preparation and arrival of the Son of God the divine king. And he proclaims, John says, there comes one mightier than I after me. And he says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and unloose his sandals. That's how great he is. And in doing that, he's building anticipation on what's to come. And next thing you know, Jesus, it's immediately, Mark likes to use that word immediately, uses it a lot in his first chapter. He's just keeping things moving. So John makes this announcement. And next thing you know, here he comes. Here's Jesus on the scene to be baptized by John. And an amazing thing happens. Remember we talked about that? All of a sudden he comes to be baptized and it says the heavens are ripped open. What a sight that would have been to see. And the Holy Ghost as a dove, the Holy Spirit as a dove, it says, descends upon him or in him. And a voice from heaven, the Father says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Mark again, he doesn't give you time to think or whatever. I mean, he moves right into, you can't bask on what just happened. He tells you then immediately, he's moving you along again. He gets baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. The Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And he's driven, it says, and you're driven with him in the story, out into the wilderness, it says, to be tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, he doesn't give us all the details that we get in Matthew and Luke's account. Because the next thing we know, we just figure he must have emerged victorious because he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom coming out of that wilderness. He's announcing that I'm the king and I'm establishing my kingdom. And if you want to be a part of it, you need to repent and believe the gospel. And right after that, when he makes that proclamation, 
we get a picture of how Jesus gathers those who are going to be a part of his kingdom. And he doesn't do what most kings would do. What he doesn't do is he doesn't amass an army with swords and shields. Instead, we get the king announcing his kingdom. And the next picture, like I said, it's like some laid-back Hollywood movie. He's just walking along the seashore, a day at the seashore in Galilee. <laughs> and he invades the private lives of these fishermen by calling them to make a radical decision. He says, you've got to leave everything you know and love and come after me and to become fishers of men. And it says there in Mark that Peter and Andrew, they were brothers, and they were casting their nets into the sea when Jesus calls them. And here's that word immediately again. Immediately, it says they just leave their nets and follow him. They make this total commitment. And then we read next that he walks a little further, and he sees James and John, who also were brothers, mending their nets. And he calls them, James and John. And it talks about them, though. It says they're in the ship with their father and the other workers. And it says they leave them. They leave their dad. And they follow him. I mean, can you imagine how that conversation would have been? Here's your dad. I mean, the dads back then, they trained their boys to take over their occupations. And they would have had to say, hey, sorry, dad. You know, I know you had other plans for our lives, but there is just something about this man. Something about his message. There's just something about his presence and his countenance that he has got to have come from God and we have to obey his call. There just had to be something about the Lord Jesus Christ, that Holy Spirit in him, that drew these men, that caused them to leave what their whole life had been built up to this point, to do, fishing. So I don't know how it was for you. You know, kids raised in here might not have had that exact experience, but I didn't exactly follow the career path that my parents had chosen for me to follow. And when you follow the Bible's message of holiness and trust in God, when you do that, it doesn't exactly make, like, you and your wife the hit of the family reunions. I mean, we remember walking into one of Lisa's uncles. They're talking about her and what we do and what we believe in our church. They didn't even stop when I came in their presence. They just keep on going. It's like, okay, I know how you feel about me. But... And we get along with them fine now, so I'm not saying anything about that. But that's what the Lord does, doesn't he? He invades people's lives and makes radical changes. And we know that his people, if you're one of God's people, we don't conform to the world in culture, in our dress, in our speech, and in our spirit. There should be a difference, shouldn't there, between us and the world. We've only read from verses 21 down to 28. But what you have in Mark's account in verses 21 through 39, it's been described as many people as a day in the life of Jesus because it's covering a 24-hour period. And Mark, I think, has just given us a snapshot, if I can say it this way, of what would have been a typical day in Jesus' ministry if there is such a thing as a quote-unquote typical day in Jesus' ministry. And so what we see here when we read 21 through 39 is we see him doing teaching, demons being cast out, various healings take place, miracles, proclamation and preaching, and we see him in private prayer in the morning. We know that every day, if you would have walked with the Lord Jesus Christ, to use one of Donald Trump's words, it would have been amazing. 
He likes to say that about a lot of stuff, doesn't he? But it truly would have been to walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, John wrote in his gospel, didn't he? That if all the things, he said, what I've written here so that you may believe on the Son of God and have eternal life. Because he said, if I wrote everything that happened, he said, all the books on earth couldn't contain it. So I'm saying to say this is a typical day, it probably was. I mean, that would have just been unbelievable. You think about that, to walk with, with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we have here, it's starting off on one Sabbath morning, going through the day, and ending the next morning, verses 21 through 39. So what happens, he enters the Sabbath, so they would have had their meeting in the synagogue on the Sabbath that would have been in the morning, in the afternoon. He teaches, drives out a demon, and in the afternoon he does what? He delivers Peter's mother-in-law of a spirit. That night, they waited until the Sabbath was over. They're bringing multitudes to him. Word's out about him by now. They're bringing him to the house, to Peter's house. That's where he ended up living. They bring him to that house for him to perform miracles and healings and deliverance, and that's what he does. Had to wear him out. I mean, I know it would have. And, but yet it says he gets up early the next morning to go and recharge himself because he's got another day coming just like that one. And it says he spent time alone in prayer. And Peter and them, they hunt him down. That's literally what it says. All men are seeking for you. And he says, no. Now, I can't just rest here. I know they like me here, and a lot's going on. He says, I've got to go preach in these other cities because that is why the Father sent me. And that's what we're seeing. So we see, picking up here in verse 21, it says, and they went into Capernaum. And just a little aside here, it says they went because once Jesus has called his disciples, he never walks alone again for three years. Never walks alone. Always has his disciples with him. So it says they went to Capernaum. And like I said, that is where Jesus, you can get this if you read the gospel accounts. He left Nazareth. He made his home. He had a house he stayed in. His home, his home base was in Capernaum. That's where he lived. Capernaum, I don't, probably could have put a map up there to show you, but if you can picture the Jordan River up north is the Sea of Galilee. It's on the northwest area of the Sea of Galilee, basically up in the north. And it's located near a major trading route, which is probably why he did most of his ministry there. Nazareth is just a little backwater town. That's a nothing. But you're on a major trading route. Word's going to get out. You're dealing with different people. It's a city of 10,000 people. It had a huge synagogue. There were mostly Jews, but there were some Gentiles there. We know there was a Roman army there. Rome had an interest in that place because of all the trade that went on. They had a customs table set up. They're collecting taxes there. They want to make sure they get part of that money that's coming in there. So it's a fairly important city back then. And we read in verse 21, it says, They went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day, it says, He entered into the synagogue and taught. So synagogues back then, so maybe some young people don't know, they're not like the temple because they didn't sacrifice animals in the synagogues, Okay. They were assembly halls, kind of like maybe like what we have here, or auditoriums. What took place is they would pray, and they actually would have some teaching that went on, or educational teaching for the children. These leaders would do that. But basically, they were there to read the Old Testament scriptures and have them explained. So there was only one temple where they did the sacrifices, but these synagogues, they're not sure exactly when they started, but they believe they started when they were scattered, when the Jews were scattered. But these synagogues were everywhere, everywhere they were. 
And the only requirement you had to have to have a synagogue was it had to be 10 Jewish men that were at least 13 years old in a town. You had that, you met that requirement, and you could have a synagogue. And so they only had one person in charge of that. And we know, if you know from reading your New Testament, he was called what? Because one of them came to Jesus, the ruler of the synagogue. So he was like a librarian. He kept track of all the scrolls, all the sacred writings. He kept track of that. He would set up the prayers. He was part of what you could say the worship committee. He was the custodian. He would have to keep the place clean. And a lot of times he was the school teacher. They'd send their kids there to get instructed on how to read. But the ruler of the synagogue generally, he did not preach or teach. Had to leave that to other people. Mainly it was the scribes, but anybody that they thought had a word from the Lord could speak in the synagogue. Anyone that they thought had a word to share. So when it says that Jesus entered the synagogue, it's not like he walked in there and there's some guy already talking and he just walks up to him and just stares him down until the guy just finally, all right, you got something you want to say? No, it didn't work like that. You spoke by permission. The ruler had to give you permission to speak. So in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas, you can read there sometime, he, they went into the synagogue in Antioch. It says they went in and they sat down. Because that's what people did. Somebody stood up and read. Everyone else is sitting around listening with the benches that were around the middle. And it says this. It says, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them Paul and Barnabas, saying, You men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So they reckon they probably knew something about Paul, probably heard something about it. If you want to come up here and say something, then come on and say it. And of course, Paul took advantage of that, didn't he? He went, him and Jesus, they went everywhere preaching in synagogues. They use these gathering of people that are coming there to hear the word because that's what they're going to talk about, isn't it? The word of God. If you wanted to find Jesus, you know where you found Jesus? On the Sabbath? You didn't find him out fishing. You didn't find him out going shopping. You know where you found Jesus? It says in Luke 4, it was his custom. Jesus was in the synagogue where the word was being preached. And in Nazareth, it says he would have been the one many times preaching and expounding the word. They knew about it. You read Luke 4, it says, as was his custom, he would be preaching there in the synagogue. So here in Mark, in our account here in Mark 1, it doesn't say what Jesus taught specifically, does it? doesn't tell us. Mark just tells more than anybody else, more than any of the other gospel writers. He tells us that Jesus taught. He's big on that. He doesn't always get in so much as to what he taught. So we don't exactly know here. But we do know what he taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. So we're talking about the crowds recognize there's something different about the Lord Jesus Christ in this teaching that he has and this authority that he has because at the end in Matthew 7 at the of the Sermon on the Mount it says the same thing it says here in Mark after they hear him teach in both places it says the people were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes in Luke 4 when Jesus spoke at the synagogue in Nazareth it says this he gets done speaking. These people had heard him before. But they'd never heard him when it says he came out of that desert full of the Spirit. There would have been a difference. And it said when he was done, it says, All bear him witness and wondered 
at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? There's something about this. He's just not a man. He's just, he's just not this same boy we knew. Right? There's something that's happened to him. God's spirit has come on him. It's given him this authority when he speaks. It says they wondered. That means they were extraordinarily impressed hearing him speak at his gracious words. Words anointed by the Spirit of God. And that word gracious is where we get our word grace from. They're winsome. There's something about them that's drawing these people to it. They gave hope. Because he talked about healing the brokenhearted, deliverance to the captive, liberty to the bruised. These gracious words of hope that he's speaking. And they wondered at that. Here in Mark, it says they were astonished. And that word means they are overwhelmed hearing him. They're astounded. Hey, we never heard anything like this before, is what they're saying. No teaching like this. God's word. Well, we've heard God's word many times, but never with power, never with authority. And they're astonished. Why? Because it says right there, he was one teaching them as one that had authority. They'd never heard divinely anointed teaching before divinely anointed authority they only knew the teaching of the scribes it says he didn't teach like them you know the scribes were what were the experts on the law they were the seminary professors of their day they were the phds of their day and the common people hey when they would walk down the street the common people and look i've been to the seminary i'm telling you it, it, nothing's changed I'm not speaking against the seminary. I love my seminary experience. I met many godly professors, but I'm saying I'm going to tell you the way it is. Those guys get deference from us common MDiv students when I was there. Believe me, that's what happens. And that's the way it was back then. They walked down the streets, boy, people would be, you know, whatever they did to those guys, they'd let them know, hey, you're something special. And when they walked into the synagogue, the scribes, everybody stood up to their feet. And you know what seats they got? They didn't sit in the back. They sat where Thomas is sitting. Thomas, you need to move. <laughs> and that's the way it is at our seminary chapel. They got all the PhDs sit right up front in the corner, got their reserved seats. You know, and they used to do that at Faith Assembly, and Dr. Friedman finally said, hey, wait a minute here. We don't have any special seats for our <clears throat> scribes. Everybody could just sit wherever. That's the way it ought to be, right? <laughs> that's the way it was. And when they spoke back then, the scribes, they'd always be quoting some rabbi for backup. It's like, man, we're just not sure, but this is what such and such said, and I think this is what it means. And that's what the people are hearing. Never sure. But Jesus, when he spoke, how would he speak? He'd say, truly, truly, I say unto you. You have heard that it was said, but he says, truly, truly, I say unto you. He had a boldness a confidence and an authority because he was the son of God when he spoke. He wasn't arrogant, I don't think, and I don't think he was brash. I think he spoke in a humble way, but I don't think he spoke like he wasn't sure if what he was saying was right or not, that he might need to double check it or get somebody's okay on it. So he had the authority as the son of God to speak without needing any backup, but I also believe that that authority that he spoke with came from his anointing from the power of the Holy Spirit that came on him. Because you contrast that with the scribes. And we know, you know, from here on out in his ministry, the scribes and the synagogues, all they did was give him problems. The scribes were after him. They're unregenerate men. Unregenerate 
dead men speaking the letter of the law. That's what these people were getting in these synagogues up until the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, what about when you get just the letter? What does that do to you? You got dead men speaking the letter. He says this. He says, Paul says, who has also God, who has also made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the spirit. He says, for the letter kills, but the spirit does what? It gives life. So there's a difference between the word and the word that's anointed, which Jesus spoke. It's given life to these people. It's bringing life. The people were used to dead men speaking the dead letter of the law with no life, but he came speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, truths of the kingdom of God that will bring life, spiritual life to these people and physical life to these people. He's going to bring both. He's bringing promise and hope and deliverance. And they never had that before, had they? I think, you know, in Mark 1, I got a suspicion that he probably said something similar. It doesn't tell us, but I got a suspicion that it was something similar to what he said in Luke 4. That the arrival of the kingdom of God would mean the destruction of the powers of darkness. And that he came to end the rule of the powers of darkness in the lives of men. And how were they doing that? Through sickness, through oppression. Physical and spiritual oppression. People were in bondage. And he's saying, I've come to end that. That's what he said, didn't he, in Luke 4 when he went in that synagogue? I think he said something similar to that. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel, the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. And Jesus is announcing God's anointed him and sent him to destroy those that have oppressed his people. And he's come to set them free by doing that, right? And he has that authority from where? Where does it come from? God. God's given him that authority. And I think that would make sense in light of what follows with what we read in the rest of those verses that here we have a demonstration of his authority in his teaching and then in dealing with his demon that's what we're seeing there he's not only saying this is what is going to happen it's demonstrated because look what we read in verse 23 if you're in mark 1 it's a reaction to the teaching authority that comes from the lord jesus christ and there was in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit, and it says he cried out. And so the King James says this man was with, with an unclean spirit. And literally the Greek means it said he was in an unclean spirit. You're saying, well, what does that mean, in an unclean spirit? Well, John, if you remember, what did he say when he was on the island of Patmos? He said he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Well, what did he mean by that? That God's spirit was controlling him. He was yielding to God's spirit. He's in the spirit is what he's saying. And this man in the synagogue was controlled by an unclean spirit. He's under his control with an unclean spirit. Now, this spirit is a separate, distinct personality from this man. 
It's not like this guy just had a problem in his brain and was just malfunctioning over there. No, he had a living being in him, controlling him, in the man. And Paul talks about people that are in the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will, controlled by him. That's the way this man was. So at some point when Jesus was teaching, this spirit took control of this man, didn't he? And it says he cried out, or more exactly, he shouted, Go away! Let us alone! He just shouted out. Right in the middle of a service. You see how that happened in here? That's what it says in verse 24. It says he cried out at the end of verse 23 saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Or really, you could say it another way, what business do we have with each other? He's like, why are you messing with me is really what he's saying. What do we have to do with you? What are you here doing here messing with us? He asked, have you come to destroy us? Is that what you come here to do? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And I'll tell you, just like if that happened in here, I think that would have created just maybe a small stir in the crowd, right? After the teaching of Jesus, like I said, that happens after he gets untaught. A day in the life of Jesus, I would say, was anything but boring. Right? I mean, how many meetings have you been in where you've had somebody cry out like that? Now, I've heard a tape one time. Listen to this tape, Dr. Freeman teaching years back, how to recognize and resist the enemy was the name of the tape. And I can still remember I was sitting in a chair, had that tape player sitting right there. I'm going to listen away. This is good. I could tell there's something special about this tape. You know how some messages you can just tell there's an anointing on there, a good anointing. I'm sitting there thinking, man, this is a good message. This is a good anointing. All of a sudden, you got out of nowhere, ah! This guy just screams out. I mean, looking at all my hairs up on my arm. The demon manifests because he was talking about a spirit of fear. And a spirit of fear manifested big time right there in that meeting under that strong authority and anointing of the word. That's what will happen when it happens. Like I said, imagine if that happened here. You know, one time I was at a wedding. And at the point when they asked, does anybody have any objections? I heard a demonic voice. It was a demonic voice in the back saying, I do. I mean, you want to talk about, I thought, I never thought I'd ever hear this in a wedding, you know? This is like crazy. And I'll tell you, so it creates a stir. You think this didn't get out, what happened here with Jesus? That, that wasn't happening in that synagogue all the time, I'm sure. You know, it's funny because after that wedding, I'm back where everybody gets their coats and here's all these teenage girls. I mean, they're just like this, talking, have you ever seen anything like that? That's what everybody's talking about. It's crazy because it's out of the ordinary. Somebody's screaming out like that in a meeting. And that's what you have here. But what we have going on here is we have two kingdoms coming together and they're having a battle and a conflict right here in the synagogue, aren't we? Isn't that what's going on? You got this unclean spirit in this man, this twisted, perverted spirit that likes to distort. We said unclean spirits, they like to distort God's creation. And it's contrasted with Jesus. The Spirit himself says who he is, the Holy One of God, the pure, undefiled, spotless Son of God, and they're clashing. We got a clash here between darkness and light, between the unclean and the holy. That's what's going on here. And when that happens, what happens when you get two armies together in battle? They don't do it quietly. 
It makes a lot of noise. You ever hear, you know, they don't turn the sound up down on a football field, but whenever you see those old replays and they do, and those guys, bam, and they hit, I mean, it is just a lot of painful noise is what I'm hearing. And that's what we have here. This demon crying out. We got a conflict and there's noise. But what do we see about the Lord Jesus Christ here? Don't you get a sense of this? There's a majesty about him, a cleanness and a power that comes forth from him. A divine authority and the demons, his unclean spirit is no match for him. And you know, in the Greek, you know how many words he had to speak to get rid of this spirit? Five. He spoke five words in Greek. I don't want to say shut up because my little boy will tell me I use the word I shouldn't have used when I get home. But he says, silence, Jesus tells him. He says he rebuked him. I, don't, I doubt if he yelled back. I think he just said, silence, come out of him. Five words is all it took. But listen, what we're seeing here is the reason Jesus came to earth. To engage and destroy the kingdom of darkness. That's why he came. 1 John 3, 8, he that practices sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. And I'll talk about it in a minute, but it goes on to say, for this purpose was the Son of God manifested. He appeared in this world. For what was his purpose? The devil had it right, to destroy the works of the devil. But he says, first of all, I just want to talk about this for a minute, that he that practices sin is, is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. You know, you realize the devil sins all the time. He never stops. He can't. It's impossible. And so do those that are his children. John 8, Jesus said this to the unsaved Jews and to all unsaved people, you are of your father, the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. He's telling them, you can't help yourselves. You'll do his bidding. You'll do his desire. And sinners did. I did as a sinner. Anger, hatred, murder, lying, lust, stealing. He's saying, that's what you'll do. And if that's what you do, that's how we know, John's saying, who your father is. Not by what you say. Somebody can say they love the Lord, but if they're doing the devil's lust, his desires, they're doing his bidding, then that's who their father is. It doesn't matter what they say. And so if we could have been in the synagogue on that day and seen what transpired, we'd have had our eyes open to a spiritual reality. And that is that there are spiritual forces working all around us. When we're out in the world, everywhere, right? We could have seen that man sitting in the synagogue and hearing this teaching, and then this spirit suddenly manifests, right? Jesus commands that spirit to shut up and come out of that man, and the spirit reluctantly has to obey. He convulses the man, sends him in convulsions, and leaves out shrieking. He doesn't just leave quietly. We would realize something, wouldn't we? There's evil spirits at work in people all around us. And if we think about it, we know that is the case. You know, it's not flesh and blood when you say something to somebody and all of a sudden you get a response back that is like, where did that come from? Isn't that what we say? Well, I'll tell you where it came from. We're learning. <laughs> They're yielding to evil spirits. And it sometimes isn't it easy. We just get offended. Man, that guy's a jerk. Well, you know why he's a jerk? 
Doesn't it say we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these principalities? They're influencing him to act that way. And let me say, nobody, as a man said, is better off being controlled by an unclean spirit, if you think about it. I mean, it kind of goes without saying, I know. But think about it. We talked not that long ago in Mark 5 about that gathering demoniac. And it said he had an unclean spirit. And look what it did to that man. This is what Jesus came to destroy. Look what it did to that man. It made him an outcast. He's not living at home anymore. Where is he living? He's living in tombs by himself. He's antisocial. You read the one account, it, he would run at people. He was so fierce, nobody could go around him. An outcast, antisocial. He had unclean spirits trying to get him to destroy himself by cutting his flesh, getting him to commit suicide. And all his relationships, you think about it, all his relationships were ruined by this spirit that was in him. Doesn't say how he got it. Driven to live alone, away from family and friends, until he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And things changed in his life, didn't they? Came to destroy the works of the evil one. So Jesus is what? What is our Lord Jesus Christ, the King? He's the restorer, not the destroyer. And sometimes we're so worried that he wants to destroy us. He does not want to destroy us. He's here to restore us back to where we need to be. You read the beginning and you read the end, and he's not the same guy, is he? It says he's back to his right mind, restored to his senses, going back to tell his family and friends what great things Jesus had done for him. And here's what we need to see. If he hadn't come to this earth, I'll talk about this a little bit later, we would have no hope. We couldn't overcome those forces. He couldn't have had any relief ever if Jesus hadn't come. And so just for a minute, look at how evil spirits ruin people's lives. Look at this heroin epidemic going on in this community. I believe that is an unclean spirit. Spirits are trying to destroy lives, and not only their lives, but the lives of the people around them that take their money, creates anguish, they become liars, you can't trust them, physical pain, and too many times they end up dead. That's an unclean spirit at work there, right? And I don't think there's an unclean spirit behind a lot of things. Drug use, obviously, pornography, and what does that do? You think, you give in to that spirit, and what happens? Next thing you know, you've got your marriage is ruined. Your life is ruined by this unclean spirit. And it says Jesus came to destroy that, to set you free. That's bondage. You know, you think about it, and you all maybe take a double take on this one, but I think most comedians have an unclean spirit. They do. If you ever look at any of their lives, their background, a lot of them are involved in magic. They have very dark backgrounds. They're very antisocial. And most of them, their mouths are so filthy. It's ridiculous. And I think there's an unclean spirit. One comedian who was a few years back one of the top comedians in this country, think it's not a spirit behind that? He was an alcoholic. He was his funniest when he was drunk. And you know what happened? He had to get on AA. He had to get off alcohol, and he was on AA. And you know what? He wasn't as funny anymore. Well, what does that tell you? There's a spirit behind that stuff. And so you ask yourselves, this is what we're seeing in Mark 1. Why do people 
drive trucks into crowds and kill little children, little innocent children. Mark 1 tells us the spirit behind that. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Why are people rude and nasty liars? Why do they go into road rages on the road when they're driving? Mark 1 is telling us why. And what is the nature of an evil spirit? Is there, think about demons and the devil. Is there any good in them? And you could take the meanest man, find me the meanest man you know, and you're still going to find some evidence of the common grace of God in his life, but not in a demon because they are totally void of good. Their nature is dark and it's cruel and it's full of hatred. Nothing worth redeeming. And that's why they will end up in hell. The Bible teaches. That's what they're worthy of. And so, because they're that way, that's why the Bible says they have to disguise themselves. Otherwise, if we saw them for what they really were, we'd be repulsed. Even sinners would be if they really realized what the devil is making them. But it says, no, they have to disguise themselves as what? Angels of light. To deceive people. Because there's not a trace of goodness, justice, compassion, or mercy in the devil and his demons. Like I said, that is why hell was created. So in hell, you think about it. Jesus said, I didn't create hell for man. But you think about it, multitudes are headed there. Men that have spurned the grace of God rejected the gospel that Jesus died so that they could be forgiven and changed and delivered, right, from the power of Satan. They refused to turn to God in repentance because in hell, men will become like devils. Totally evil is what will happen. They'll be totally given over to what their evil natures want, and they'll suffer the same fate as the devil and his angels. And I'll tell you what that should do. That should put a fear in us. It really should. That we should want to live righteous lives and give heed to his word because that's what 2 Thessalonians is saying. Because they receive not the love of the truth, God sent them a strong delusion. Let them have their way that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who didn't have pleasure in righteousness but in unrighteousness that they could be saved. That should put a fear in us. It should. But you know what else it ought to do? It ought to put a, some compassion in us for those that are being driven like that, taken captive by the devil. That somehow we can pray God deliver them from this power of darkness that is out to destroy their lives and their families and most of all, their souls for eternity. Shouldn't it? I think it should. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, having therefore these promises, these promises that God will walk with us as a father, we can be his sons and daughters. Having therefore these promises, he says, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness. And how are we going to do that? In the fear of God. I don't want to end up where those other people end up because I wasn't willing to take what you had given me and trust in your word and walk in holiness. No, no, I don't want to end up with them. He says we should get rid of all that, perfecting holiness. But John goes on to say that the purpose of the Son of God, I've already quoted it, 1 John 3, 8, was to destroy the works of the devil, to abolish his works and the lies of men. And look, the demon here, we're in still in Mark 1, it cries out, 
Verse 24, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Are you come to destroy us? He cries out. And guess, like I said, that devil has got good theology, doesn't he? His theology is really good. He knows who Jesus is, and he knows why Jesus has come, doesn't he? He's been anointed to set the captives free and to destroy Satan's grip and strongholds in the lives of people. Which this demon is part of that plan. And that devil knows that. He knows that's going to happen. You've come now to destroy us? Because he knows the arrival of this king. Those guys know their Bible, those demons. Oh, yeah. They believe. What does it say in James 2? They believe so much, they tremble. But you know what they don't do? They know what's going to happen to them. But you know what they can't do that we can? They can't trust. But they know. All they know. They know what's going to happen. So he knows when the king and his kingdom comes, that is his end. That's the end of the road for me and my friends. All he doesn't know, though, is the exact time. He's saying, have you come now to destroy us? Just didn't know the time because Revelation 20 is when that's going to happen once and for all. Demons are still alive and well. We see them at work in this world, don't we? He didn't destroy them back then. They are alive and well in this world. So Revelation 20, all those forces and Satan himself are going to be forever consigned to the pit of hell. Never to bother anybody again. Never to bother God's kingdom ever again or his people. But until that time, does that mean that we as God's people have to be subject to these powers of darkness? Does it? What do you think? Everybody's looking at me like you're not sure. It's not a trick question. I'm saying, thank you, Mr. Rudy. No. So put something there in Mark and turn back to Matthew 12, if you would. Beginning in verse 22. This is the good news for us. Verse 22, Matthew 12, 22, it says, Then was brought unto him Jesus, one possessed with the devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people, once again, they are amazed and says, It's not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, Well, this fellow does not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus is like, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, friends. And it says he knew their thoughts. And so he said unto them, Well, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I'm casting out the devil by the devil, by whom do your children cast him out? What power are you saying your children are using them with all these exorcisms they do to cast out spirits? He's asking them that question. He says, therefore, they shall be your judges. But look what he says in verse 28, which is what I want to get to. He said, Jesus said, but if I cast out devils by the spirit of God or the finger of God, then he says what you can know. What can we know? That the kingdom of God is come unto you. In other words, he's saying it is here now. It's present for us. It is. And that's why we can know we have healing. We don't have to be subject to these unclean spirits in our families. We don't. You know, I read these commentaries and they're like, well, yeah. Oh, yeah, the kingdom of God and all the miracles and deliverance, it'll come, but it's down the road. Miracles don't take place. The old thing about they cease. Come on. I'd be dead if that was the case. 
I mean, I needed the kingdom of God in my life manifested big time. I needed the finger of God to cast out spirits out of me in a major way. And that's what he's done. I'm sure he's done it for lots of you in here. Amen. 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 I need to get an amen on that one. And that's what's happened. So when we get in this account and we get past the wild show, the whole thing of this spirit screaming out, what we can see is evil forces are what? They're at work in this world. They were working that synagogue, and they hate us, and they seek to do us harm, don't they? And here's the other thing we know. They controlled that man. They controlled the Gadarene demoniac, and they are supremely stronger than you or I are. We could never conquer spirits in and of ourselves. They would literally just have their way with us. And what they do with a lot of people in the world, that spirit, it just takes over that man. It starts speaking through him, doesn't it? But here's the point Mark's trying to make and what I'm trying to make tonight. Despite the strength of these demons, the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely stronger. I'm saying infinitely stronger, not just he's got a little bit more. He won that arm wrestling match, but he was almost back there and he finally got it over. No, it's not even a contest. Five words and they're gone. You don't see Jesus sweating, wondering if it's going to work. He just speaks. It's that authority of the Spirit of God in him, right? And look, that comes from our Lord. He's the one we're trusting in. And people in there have situations where it's unclean spirits that are oppressing you and your family. We don't have to just let that go and be that way. That's what the message, that's what the gospel is. That's why we have this account in Mark. It's nothing within ourselves, is it? Let me read this. I've read this before, but listen, what a great song. Martin Luther, a mighty fortress is our God. That's what he's saying in this song. Listen to this. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. He's our helper amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. He says this, for still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. That's what we see here. That's what you see in the Bible. Nobody on earth can defeat the devil. He says, goes on to say, did we in our own strength confide? If we trusted in ourselves, he's saying, our strength to overcome the devil. He says, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. This is my beloved son. That's the one. And he goes on to say, dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. He will win the battle. And in the last verse, he says this, And though this world with evil filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And in the case we're seeing here in Mark 1, it took five. But it could have just been one. <laughs> That's all we need is an anointed word from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all we need. If you would, I want you to see this too, please. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 9. 
I'm saying he's the one that we trust in to defeat our enemies. Deuteronomy 9, beginning in verse 1. And Moses writes this to Israel. He says, Hear, O Israel, you are to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations. And he tells them, They're greater and they're mightier than you. Cities great and fenced up to heaven. A people great and tall. The children of the Anakims, whom you know and of whom you have heard say, well, who can stand before the children of Anak? And isn't that what we say a lot of times about the devil and his works? We've got to admit they're greater than us. They are. God doesn't try to say they aren't. And who could stand before this mighty devil? But look, he didn't stop there. He says we've got to understand something. Look in verse 3. Moses tells them, understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goes before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he shall bring them down before thy face. And so shall you drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said unto you. He's saying you've got to understand and know something. It's God that goes before you against your enemies as a consuming fire. He will deal with the devil. We just have to trust him to do it, don't we? He will do it and seek his face. So like I said, we'd have good reason to fear the devil if the Lord Jesus Christ had not come. But he has come and shown us, that's what we're seeing here, his power and authority over demonic powers. And he's saying he is the one that will fight for us as we go forth and trust in his salvation, whatever it is we need, right? All we need is one word from Jesus, a spirit-empowered word from Jesus. So look back in Mark. Let's go back to Mark. Look what it says there in verses 25 to 28. It says, And when Jesus rebuked him and gave those five words, Hold thy peace and come out of him, when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him, and they were all amazed, and so much that they questioned among themselves, saying, Well, what thing is this? What new teaching or doctrine is this? For with authority commands he even the unclean spirits, and what has to happen? They do obey him, and immediately, all oh, that word got out. What happened in that synagogue that day? Immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. So the people we read in verse 27, they're amazed at the teaching of Jesus, but what they are really amazed at is the fact that he teaches truth and then demonstrates the reality of it. He's got that kind of authority. And when the truth of God's word is spoken by somebody filled with the Holy Spirit, what do we know the Holy Spirit is? It's called the Spirit of Christ. You can't divide God up, right? So when that happens, a word is spoken by someone filled with the Spirit of God. It's the same as if Jesus spoke it in that sense, right? So when the seven sons of Sceva tried to do what Paul did, cast the Spirit out of a man, we know it didn't work, did it? Why is that? They weren't living holy lives following the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. They weren't filled with His Spirit. And that's what gives you authority. It's a life lived walking with the Lord, seeking him in prayer. But what they said to that man that tried to cast him out is revealing. They said this, Jesus I know. And they didn't stop there because they went on to say, Paul I know. But who are you? So they didn't just say they knew Jesus. It says they knew Paul. 
who was filled with the spirit of Jesus. And he had, because of that, nothing inherent in Paul, the power to cast out unclean spirits, just like Jesus did, even in a more incredible way, because they would pray for handkerchiefs, and people were delivered of spirits. Just Paul, that presence of the spirit on Paul, praying over those handkerchiefs, delivered people of demons. That's incredible, isn't it? But that's not Jesus doing that. That's Paul doing that. And those spirits also knew Philip in Acts 8, who was filled with the spirit of Jesus, we know. <laughs> That's what we learned in Acts 6 when he was named the deacon. He said, you don't find this ordinary person to be a deacon. We want somebody that is filled with the spirit. And that's who they got. Philip was one of them, one of the first deacons. He goes down to Samaria and listen to this. Preaches there in Acts 8, and it says, And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, for unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them. It's the same thing we read. Look in verse 26. Same thing Jesus did. Philip did. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. The same thing's happening. So we can't just limit this to just, well, it was Jesus or it was Paul or it was even Philip. We can't limit it to that, can we? Because we'll get to the end of Mark. Mark 16. And we're going to talk about that. There are a lot of people now, these days, seminary people, and almost any commentary you buy now will say that the end of Mark was never written by Mark and doesn't belong there. And we'll talk about that. I'm telling you, I've had to study that out for a Greek class I had. And I'm saying, using their own principles, I don't know how they could honestly say that. It should be there. Seriously. Looking at the facts, I'm saying, there's no doubt in my mind. Mark 16 should be there. But listen to what Mark 16, every believer, all of us in here, anyone that's a believer, even a, a young teenager has this authority. Young teenager filled with the Spirit. You think, me? Huh? Oh, yeah. That's what it, the Word says. He that believeth, Mark 16, and is baptized shall be saved, and these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. That's the Word of God, isn't it? That's what it says. According to God's word, which we just read, unclean spirits have to obey just like they did for Jesus when we speak by the power of the Holy Spirit and in faith. Just like they did for Jesus, like they did for Paul, like they did for Philip, and like they've done for saints down through the centuries. But I'll tell you something. I've been thinking about this verse all week, and I'm telling you, the more I think about it, the more your eyes get opened. And that's something we need to learn to do is meditate on what is being said in verses and meditate on how God can really do that for me. And pray for him to open our eyes. Brother Hamilton used to quote this all the time. Open our eyes that we can see the power we have. We don't have to live in fear if we're walking with the Lord and we're walking in obedience. We don't have to walk in fear of the powers of darkness. And pray that we can have our eyes open to the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. That we're seeing right there in Mark 1 in our Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us the same authority. Nothing because of us. Like Peter said when he healed that lame man, it's not because of my holiness or my power. It's because of what I was given we just have to believe and trust that we've been given that. And more than anything, we've got to pray and seek the Lord to have that anointing and walk in holiness. 
if we need to change that, right? Because all through the New Testament, unclean spirits, they manifest in ways. They create these unusual behaviors. We see that in Mark 5 and other ways. Children having epileptic seizures. It's an unclean spirit, is said. It says an unclean spirit that vexed people's souls. Jesus cast out of them. It made a young girl bedfast, the Syrophoenician's daughter. When she got healed, she was in bed. I don't know exactly what that spirit was doing to her. And many times it just categorizes demonic activity. It just says they're unclean spirits. Maybe that's just a name for any demon that's unclean, trying to distort God's creation. But what we see here in Mark 1 is a positive thing. We see our Lord, Jesus, has absolute and complete authority over those beings. And he will totally destroy them once and for all at his second coming. But in the meantime, do we not believe that the kingdom of God has come to us? I mean, if you're a Christian, we are a current citizen of the kingdom of God. We are, by faith. It's a reality. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We don't have to wait. Because Jesus said this in Luke, If I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, he says, don't doubt it. He says, no doubt, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so we can deliver ourselves and we can deliver others, can't we? Amen. Praise God. Now let's pray. Father, I do just ask for all of us here as a church, Lord, that you will just open our spiritual understanding that we can see the power and authority we have through the blood of Jesus, through the Spirit of God in us, the Spirit of Jesus in us, and that we have authority over these demonic forces. They have no power over our lives, over our families, and others that come to us to pray for them, Lord, we can exercise that authority in your name. And I just ask you'll show us that, make that a living reality. And most of all, Lord, I just ask that you make us a people that walk in obedience and holiness and that seek you, that we can have that anointing and presence of your spirit to deal with situations that you bring across our paths. I just ask you'll bring us back to that, Lord. Bring us back to a people that seek you first and anxiously pray for your power to be manifest in our midst and in our lives and that we can have that supernatural peace and joy and power that you promise those that are filled with your spirit. Just ask that you'll do that for us tonight, Father, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.